Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Brad Burge is the Director of Communications at the MAPS Institute. He earned his Bachelor's in Communications and Psychology from Stanford University in 2005 and his Master's in Communication from the University of California in 2009. His graduate work focused on the political, scientific, and cultural change required to make illicit drugs into legitimate medicines. He has a long-standing interest in drug policy reform and activism. Brad? Let's get right into it, man. Um, how, how did you find yourself working with the MAPS Institute? Uh, well, I uh, really uh, enjoy and appreciate... Um, on the one hand, having a lot to do, and uh, MAPS is certainly doing that. And, um, you know, I've um, always had an interest in science uh, and in psychology. I, I studied psychology as an undergraduate at Stanford. That was my first major. And then I also studied communication when I was an undergraduate. And so uh, being able to communicate about, about psychological and psychiatric research brings those two parts of my interests together. Um, that's um, just sort of the... Uh, sort of default, the mainstream um, reason, um, my academic and intellectual interests in psychology and communication, mm. um, communicating about science to a large public and especially important science is a very valuable and important thing um, to do, I think. Uh, and then, um, you know, for, uh, you know, psychedelics in particular and medical marijuana, I also have a personal connection there. Um, I, uh, I'm a medical marijuana patient, and um, that experience of getting my first medical marijuana card uh, living in California, um, that experience of um, transitioning from using an illegal drug to a legitimate medicine uh, just really showed me the power of um, what a legal treatment um, could mean, how that can remove paranoia and help you be safer, uh, help you get better access to medicine. Um, so that experience of being a medical marijuana patient, you know, really showed me that, um, you know, the legal status uh, of something is, is really important. Can you just describe what the MAPS Institute is for the people who may not know? Uh, well, MAPS is a, essentially we're a nonprofit pharmaceutical company. That's primarily how we function right now. The difference between MAPS and other pharmaceutical companies is one, we're not trying to make a profit. Uh, we function entirely through donations at this point, people who want to see the research happen. Um, you know, we're also different in the sense that we're developing a very different kind of treatment. We're not developing drugs that people have to be hooked on for the rest of their lives to take every day and then still never get better, but rather we're developing treatments through psychedelics that people only have to use a couple of times, two or three times. So that's the main focus of our work is developing the medical uh, applications for psychedelics and marijuana. In addition to that, we also do a lot of public education about the real risks and benefits of psychedelics and marijuana when they are used carefully and responsibly since there's been so much propaganda and misinformation circulated over the last hundred years really over marijuana and the last 60 years or so 
over right. psychedelics. Yeah. So we're trying to counteract a lot of that in addition to doing the research. There seems to be this legal penumbra, this dark legal penumbra around discussing these issues. And even in doing this podcast, it the judgment is that here are two guys just kind of discussing what it feels like to do drugs. Yeah, that's... that's um that, that point you make about this critique of, well, are you just talking about drugs uh, or uh, are you just a drug addict or is that, is that all you're interested in? You know, that's part of what we're trying to dismantle. We're right. trying to sort of change how people think about that and stop just dismissing this category of drugs, psychedelics and marijuana, as, as drugs with, with no other use than abuse, whereas people are, you know, seemingly arbitrarily um, at least culturally, uh, assigning other drugs that are far more harmful, <clears throat> prescription opiates and other painkillers, alcohol, nicotine, all of these things that are legal drugs, and those are somehow okay. So there's clearly an arbitrary or a historical distinction that we've learned to make, and MAPS is trying to collapse that distinction by showing, hey, you know, it's not about these drugs are bad and these drugs are good. It's about how we're using the drugs and what we're doing with them, whether they're being helpful they're, or, or, or they're being harmful. <clears throat> So MAPS was founded in 1986. Uh, MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, which is definitely a mouthful and sounds really boring, and that's really the point. Uh, is is uh, We feel psychedelics are exciting in and, of, in and of themselves, and they don't need a whole lot of hoopla surrounding them to get attention. So we, uh, MAPS, as a nonprofit organization, doing legitimate research was started in 1986 in order to restore psychedelics back to scientific therapy, uh, to, to, to scientific research and therapy. Um, you know, prior, uh, a, a lot of people don't know this actually, is that before they were criminalized in the late 1970s and early 1980s, psychedelics, uh, including LSD and MDMA, were actually widely used in therapy by psychiatrists and therapists for things like couples counseling, anxiety, even post-traumatic stress disorder, but no research had been done. So by the time these drugs escaped into the club scene uh, and started being um, used and, and abused um, on a widespread basis, that research stopped, uh, primarily because funding evaporated and suddenly it was very taboo to talk about it. So MAPS is, um, is, is working to get those substances back into a legitimate mainstream conversation. So being able to talk about them openly in a way that we're doing here you know, today on your show. Yeah, I agree completely. I really think it is very important that we have these types of open discussions and educate ourselves, others, and society. My next question has to do with the history of psychedelic research and what is the the first account of people using drugs and psychedelics to treat these types of disorders? Well, the very first accounts were all the way back in the 1950s. Um, uh, Humphrey Osmond uh, was one of the um, early um, uh, Western discoverers. Um, that is, um, you know, people not in these indigenous contexts, um, uh, in a more colonial context, to, to, to bring um, these substances into sort of the Western context to introduce uh, writers and artists and then later a much wider public, uh, including therapists, to the use of things like psilocybin um, and um, LSD. 
Uh, so it, it was all the way back in the 1950s and 1960s through the 1970s. Uh, one um, uh, South American psychiatrist, uh, Claudio Naranjo, uh, was a Chilean psychiatrist. Um, uh, he, he's still around and travels and gives lectures. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called um, Healing with Intactogens, which was just recently republished uh, in English by MAPS that was about the healing use of um, substances related to MDMA, uh, and also Ibogaine to treat psychiatric disorders. So including a lot of firsthand case accounts uh, from Naranjo's uh, patients in the 1970s um, about the therapeutic uses of those, of those substances. Another one was Stanislav Grof, uh, who's a psychiatrist, um, a, uh, uh, one of the founders of transpersonal psychology. So this idea that our consciousnesses, our, our uh, mental illnesses, and our awareness are shaped not just by the events that happen to us during our lifetime, but also the events that happen to us before birth and after our death, and that psychology and psychiatry should consider these more spiritual dimensions when they're treating mental illness. Um, Stan Groff, back in the 1970s, was also treating thousands of patients using LSD and doing it legally. Um, you know, this was before LSD was, was criminalized. So there are some widespread firsthand case accounts from therapists and psychiatrists who have used these drugs um, and developed expertise in them before they were criminalized. Since then, um, there's been a, a, a massive freeze on the legal use of those substances. When they were made illegal, a lot of people went underground um, and continued practicing um, at the risk, of course, of their licenses um, and their legal freedom. Um, and um, a lot of people just stopped. Um, yeah. So now uh, the research that we're doing is, is hoping to make it legal once again for therapists to use those in their practice. Yeah, that's pretty intriguing that people would have to go underground for uh, various treatments and the research that you guys are conducting. So what is the, the current scope of the MAPS Institute? PTSD is our lead indication right now. Um, you know, we can talk all day in general terms about how psychedelics can be generally helpful for people. Um, and some people have had those experiences and they've been helped by psychedelics. Um, and they understand right off the bat. Millions of people, in fact. Uh, but there's a lot of other people who haven't experienced that um, for, for whatever reason, because they're illegal or because they're just not interested um, or because they've heard exaggerated claims about their risks, have not tried psychedelics themselves. Um, so... So for those people, it's not the stories, it's not this general talking about it that, that really matters. What really matters is scientific research. And that's what's going to matter in changing a lot of minds and opening up people who could possibly uh, benefit um, uh, from the use of these substances. And also um, for moving through the FDA, which is the only way that these drugs are going to be approved for legal prescription use. Um, you know, just as a, as a side note, before I describe what uh, we're doing with MDMA and PTSD, um, is that this 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 clinical research, this prescription approval of MDMA and LSD um, and marijuana that MAPS is working towards, is not our final end goal. Um, our end goal is to open up any number of contexts where people can use psychedelics and marijuana for beneficial purposes, not just to heal from mental illness, but also for spiritual uses and, re and, and, and recreational uses uh, and um, for enhancing creativity, but always in safe and legal contexts. <clears throat> right. So with MDMA, 
this is kind of a doorway. It's a, it's a stepping stone um, to a much wider acceptance of psychedelic research and psychedelic therapy in this sense. Um, PTSD, of course, is a... Um, well, maybe not, of course. I think people haven't heard about it enough. Um, but PTSD is, a, is an epidemic right now. Um, not just the, the many thousands of veterans who are coming back uh, from abroad um, suffering from PTSD, um, but also the millions of people who have experienced sexual assault or violent crime or natural disasters or um, anything that causes the, the, these kinds of lasting traumatic responses. This has happened to millions of people in the United States alone. Um, Many people are trying to find um, better approaches to treating PTSD. Um, and for a lot of people, in fact, for a significant minority, at least a third of patients um, with PTSD, they don't respond to the existing therapies. So um, over a third of people with PTSD um, just, just don't get better, um, despite medication, despite psychotherapy. And PTSD is becoming... Uh, more and more widely recognized. Uh, I think because of the veterans' issues, um, because of the response to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, because of the incredibly just, just, just terrifying suicide rate among veterans, where we've had more veterans commit suicide than have actually died in combat in the Middle East in the last 10 years. And that's yeah. just, and that's just, just, just horrifying. Yeah. Um, so where is the war really happening? It's not abroad. Wow. It's yeah. right here because um, this is where people are dying also. Um, so, you know, PTSD is this major issue. It's a, it's a, it's a um, you know, really pressing cultural problem. And um, there's a great deal of reason to believe um, previously, anecdotally, and now through scientific clinical research that MDMA combined with psychotherapy can be a lasting, uh, a lasting treatment. Uh, for PTSD. So currently the approved treatments for PTSD, the approved drugs for PTSD uh, are uh, SSRIs. They're, they're, strategic, um, they're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right. um, uh, Prozac and Paxil. Um, again, for a third of people, those don't work. Um, and um, the results, even in the FDA-approved clinical trials for those um, did show significant efficacy, but the margin was very small. So people did get better, but only marginally, barely enough for prescription approval, in fact. Mm. Um, with MDMA, combined with psychotherapy, the treatment approach we're looking at only administers that to people a couple of times. So two or three times is the course of treatment um, in our studies, whereas for Prozac and Paxil, uh, Obviously, people have to take those every day, often for the rest of their lives, and they still don't get better. Is there a more lasting effect of the use of MDMA to treat PTSD versus a pharmaceutical drug? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we're finding. Um, and it's, it's a totally different approach from the conventional pharmaceutical approach where people are getting these drugs every day. Um, our uh, first... Um, completed pilot study uh, that was in South Carolina in 19 subjects found that 83% of uh, those in the study who received MDMA-assisted psychotherapy no longer qualified for PTSD after just two treatments. Now, to, to sort of highlight what that means is that that means that, so 83% of those 19 subjects received two sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. After those two sessions, 
they no longer qualified for PTSD. So they wouldn't have gotten into the study uh, if they'd have had that level of PTSD after the treatment. So that's compared with 25% of those who just received two standard therapy sessions. So exactly the same therapy without the MDMA. Mm-hmm. So we've got 25% versus 83%. The difference being made up for presumably because of the double-blind nature of the trial, that difference was because of the MDMA being present. Um, So these subjects also, they're not just everyday PTSD subjects. These are people who had had PTSD for an average of 19 years. So some much longer than that. So two decades, three decades even worth of PTSD and they'd tried other treatments and they hadn't worked for them. So they enrolled in the study and 83% of them didn't have PTSD after just two treatments. Um, And that's not exaggerating. That is what the study results show. You can check out the results in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. And then the following year, we um, did a a, a follow-up of of those subjects. So most most clinical studies, including the ones for Prozac and Paxil, they only evaluated people um, after a few months following treatment. We followed people for an average of 3.8 years. So almost four years after their second treatment. And we found that over that period of time, those results, that 83% reduction um, or that 83% elimination of PTSD uh, had been sustained on average for those people. Um, During that time, two subjects relapsed. So they developed PTSD symptoms again. We got permission from the FDA to give those subjects one additional session of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy again. Um, and so we did that and we found that their PTSD symptoms had dropped down below the qualifying level again. Hmm. So some people just might take more, um, or those symptoms might come back, but still we're only talking two or possibly three sessions of MDMA assisted psychotherapy to eliminate or, 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 or dramatically reduce PTSD symptoms in people who've had PTSD for an average of two decades. Yeah, I was, um, I was speaking to a, a friend of mine in preparation for this interview. He served in the military and he tried, came back, was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, he tried pharmaceutical drugs. They didn't work. Um, he resorted to using psilocybin on his own and he noticed a remarkable difference. He actually noticed an improvement in you know, his, his ability to deal with with being back in the world. Um, so how that leads me to the next, my next question, I, how, how do we remove this, this social stigma? I mean, the research is there and, and are you guys moving towards doing more controlled studies is MDMA? I mean, MDMA is the main focus, but I know that there are other psychedelics like LSD and ayahuasca and Ibogaine. And, um, there, there are clinics that, that you can go to to you know, treat addiction disorders. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's a large kind of you know scope of of drugs here that you can use to tr- treat uh, these these illnesses. I guess uh, it's illnesses. really exciting. Yeah, we're we're trying to find out exactly what those which drugs are best for which uh, for which conditions. Um, but you know, again, like I said, our broader mission is to um, open up um, all sorts of uses for these compounds. Um, you know, MDMA might 
be good combined with psychotherapy for one thing, but not for another. Um, LSD, likewise, it, it's a different drug uh, with different effects and used in psychotherapy is probably useful for different things. So the research that we're doing is trying to parse that out. Um, and also to establish a really firm evidence base for what are the real risks of these drugs so that we can adequately inform people who might choose to use them on their own, like your veteran friend. Um, so, you know, the, the, the vision, the vision that uh, was put forward by uh, MAPS founder Rick Doblin when he started um, when he started MAPS back in 1986, um, and I know you've spoken with uh, Tom Schroeder, Tom Schroeder yeah, yeah. yeah, the author of Acid Test, and um, probably heard a little bit, um, you know, about Rick and his character and his vision and his drive um, to to bring these psychedelics back into mainstream <coughs> practice, um, and in fact to become a psychedelic therapist himself, which is his goal. Um, and so, um, what we're focused on is is moving MDMA through this clinical trial process. And if we continue to get these really astounding results, um, and uh, we have four currently ongoing phase two studies to build on those results, and we're starting to get some preliminary looks at the data, and it's looking really exciting. Uh, that, 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 and, um, you know, we're on schedule to deliver some... Uh, really serious clinical trial results to the FDA at the end of uh, 2021. So in about seven years, we're going to have an evaluation from the FDA of the clinical trials that have been completed, deciding whether to make MDMA a legal prescription drug. Hmm. Now, what that means in practice is not that people are going to be able to get a prescription from their doctor and take MDMA and go home and call them in the morning kind of situation. Right. Uh, not at all. Um, it's going to be administered much more like um, you could look at the model of methadone clinics, um, which are not legal um, in, 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 in a lot of places still because of uh, you know, drug fears and prohibitions and miseducation. Um, but you can look at methadone clinics or ibogaine clinics, as you mentioned, um, which are available for drug addiction, um, not in the United States, but in Mexico and other countries. Um, is that there will be clinics where people come in and they meet the therapist and they receive the therapy there. So psychedelic therapy clinics where therapists and psychiatrists can administer legally uh, approved prescription psychedelics combined with psychotherapy. So people will stay the night at these clinics and they'll go home the next day. Maybe somebody will come and pick them up. There will be aftercare provided, uh, you know, massage, meditation, body work, you know, walking, um, um, additional psychotherapy sessions, all of the things that make psychedelic therapy really stick. Um, all of those services will be provided there um, at the psychedelic therapy center. So once those are open, um, we'll be able to use any sort of um, psychedelics that are approved um, in those in those clinics, um, and that uh, should you know proliferate across the country and um, you know make it available for the people who need it. Yeah, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna said something like. Uh, that these these other drugs are he termed quote uh, conspiracy drugs like TV tobacco caffeine sugar alcohol and he said that we need to go back to the drugs that first made human beings like strong and he was referring to food of the gods where he he talked about these sort of proto proto humans with small brains that. Uh, were, were kind of finding these mushrooms growing out of the feces of the, the little local cat, cattle there. And he claimed that uh, the, 
by by eating these these little fungus shrooms that it would have enhanced their their eyesight their sexual enjoyment and thereby would have led to them sort of enhancing their genetic evolution so he says that he says that by you know it's it's an urgent necessity for the legalization of of these drugs um do you do you see you know there's Terrence McKenna is is a big name and Timothy Leary there there doesn't seem to be anyone like that that is sort of using philosophy and and kind of talking to us anymore. I mean I know I know Rick Rick Doblin just seems like more of an activist than mm-hmm. than than a philosopher. So I'm uh, just I'm yeah. curious to to know, you know, do you, do you see any is there a reason for that separation? I don't see a reason for the separation. I think we definitely need both in the sense that we need the guiding metaphors that come from philosophy and storytelling. And we also need the hard scientific evidence so that we can implement it into concrete policy so that we can actually make these tools available. Um, You know, I think there's a tendency for philosophy to go off on its own track. um, And, um, you know, those metaphors that it provides for how to understand psychedelic experiences or um, altered states of consciousness is extremely valuable. And the stories that we get from people like Terrence McKenna and the people who, who report their experiences, their, their own psychedelic experiences, are very valuable because they help explore the outer dimensions of, of consciousness, which is a scientific investigation um, and is something we have a right as humans to explore. Uh, but on the other side, these uh, states of mind and these philosophies and these stories have been relegated to a counterculture, unfortunately, because of uh, both decades of disruption by forces that um, don't agree with the philosophy um, and also by deliberate um, or, or, or not deliberate, that is, by, by unintentional, um, the unintentional sidelining of the counterculture itself. Yeah. So every time we have a group that comes out and, and, and proclaims that it is a countercultural group, um, that it is fighting the status quo, you know, it's a, it's a different approach to change than working within the mainstream and using the tools of, as they say, the system to, um, to change the system itself. Well, there's, there's not a profit. There's no profit in a cure, right? So I, mean, right. I, can't, I can't continue to take... Paxil if I if I'm no longer depressed because I had a therapy session on MDMA so I mean there's mm-hmm. there's nothing really it, it in it for these large pharmaceutical companies if if we're actually being cured you know of of our ailments um, I was reading about mm-hmm. uh, this this ketamine infusion therapy have you mm-hmm. heard of this yeah 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 ketamine it's a legal it's a legal dissociative anesthetic that has some psychedelic effects yeah um it, it was in there's actually a clinic in LA that mm. uses this therapy treatment to treat problems such as complex regional pain syndrome um and it it even affects depression i mean there's there's so many positive uses to these these substances that we've we've already written off and demonized and with our draconian laws. I mean, and I guess this is why MAPS is so important to what we're doing is you guys are actually putting the research together and getting the information out there. You know, as I mentioned, we have these um, 
phase two studies of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Um, also, just, just last week, um, or rather two weeks ago, uh, the publication of some qualitative long-term results from our LSD-assisted psychotherapy study in Switzerland, which was completed last year. Um, those results were published um, in the Journal of Psychopharmacology as well. Um, so we have results from that showing sustained reductions in anxiety and better quality of life in um, subjects with anxiety uh, associated with advanced stage illness that participated in that study. So we have the MDMA studies, the LSD results. Um, we're also working on some observational studies of Ibogaine and ayahuasca-assisted therapy for addiction. And um, uh, there's, there's, an, there's other organizations. Uh, the Hefter Research Institute uh, is sponsoring uh, really excellent psilocybin research, looking at psilocybin treatment for nicotine addiction, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for anxiety associated with life-threatening illness. Um, so there's a lot of great work going on with psilocybin as well. Uh, so the field is, is, I think, just opening up uh, in a really, really exciting way. Um, you know, and even, you know, most excitingly, you know, really is watching this field, you know, for me, watching this field coming together, uh, watching um, a, a new scientific legitimate field coming together where people are literally coming out of the shadows or coming from their own professions, neuroscientists and uh, hospice workers and marriage counselors and artists and just, just um, psychiatrists, uh, f um, pharmacologists, people are coming from all ends of the spectrum saying, hey, you know, I have an interest in psychedelic therapy now that this is a mainstream conversation. So watching all of these different people come from these different fields to build this, you know, new growing field of psychedelic therapy and psychedelic science is, um, is, is, is really cool. There's a lot of neat opportunities for students and other people with an interest in the field to kind of find their niche. What are some of the dangers associated with using this in a clinical setting versus a recreational setting? And how do you treat or react or respond to someone having an adverse reaction to what they're experiencing or feeling? Hmm. Yeah. Um, seeing what is happening with uh, psychedelics and therapy in a clinical setting kind of changes how you might think about what it means to have a difficult psychedelic experience. Um, often in these recreational settings, these less controlled settings, first of all, people don't know what they're getting. You never know what you're putting into your system unless you've done some sort of a scientific test. Testing kits are available, but they're not 100% reliable, and most people don't use them. Um, so in those settings, you don't know what you're using. Um, and then also in those settings, you lack support. So a difficult situation where you, um, you lose your self-consciousness or you, you lose your self-awareness, uh, you can get into a very dangerous situation. Um, you can either overdose because you don't know the dosage or what you're taking, uh, or you're, you can lower your boundaries uh, and, and people can get into compromising dangerous situations. That's the main danger in those, in those situations. But you know, if you get into a difficult psychological state, which is to say a challenging one, um, where fears come up or difficult emotions come up, and you're in a comfortable setting with adequate water and snacks and, 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 comfort, and very comforting, compassionate, trained therapists around you, those difficult situations can actually be transformed into very therapeutic ones. With psychedelics, um, often, 
the reason for a difficult experience is because uh, 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 unprocessed emotional trauma or memories is, is coming up. And of course, if you're in an uncontrolled setting, that can be very dangerous. Yeah. But if you're in a therapist's office and you're prepared for the experience, in fact, you're expecting it, mm-hmm. um, and you know that you're going to have adequate support, uh, then that's an actually a fantastic opportunity to, to deal with those um, those 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 issues as they come up what an interesting phenomenon that you know we can we can kind of use these substances to heal our psyche and 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 you know there's this noticeable change and no longer you're dependent on this this pharmaceutical drug and and feeding that machine Mm. um how close is your relationship to mr doblin and how closely do you guys work together? I talk with him most days, <laughs> unless he's traveling. Right. Uh, he's, uh, he's off to the UK, actually. He's just on a flight to the UK um, for this weekend. MAPS um, is leading, uh, with Rick's assistance, a uh, therapist training for um, uh, clinicians who are going to be working on our MDMA-assisted psychotherapy research. So therapists from all over the world, about 30 of them, are coming to receive training, not actually using the MDMA, but to go through the therapeutic approach and to learn about the pharmacology and the risks. So that's happening this weekend and is part of our growing clinical trial program. It's pretty exciting. Have you heard of Francis Crick? He, mm. he uh, came up with the DNA helix. Um, pretty sure he, he, was, he said that he was under the influence of, of LSD when he discovered the double helix structure of DNA, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard he, um, uh, he, he attributes the discovery to an experience that he had while under the influence of LSD. So at least my understanding was there wasn't a, he didn't sort of like envision it right there during the LSD experience, but sort of connections he had made sort of led him down the line to, to, to discover it. But that admission was... Um, you know, really spectacular. Um, you know, um, you know, uh, we've also had Steve Jobs come out um, yeah. and say that, that that LSD was quote you know one of the most important unquote experiences of his life. Um, you know, I think so. It's it's really great when people can come out publicly and talk about their scientific discoveries and talk about uh, psychedelics' role in their own creative process. Um, it's 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 um, you know, something that, you know, the millions of middle-aged people now who have tried LSD in their lives, most of them already know but can't talk about because it's illegal. Um, but uh, it's also a story that many of us have to hear. And as far as like, psychedelics and creativity, uh, you know, MAPS right now and most of the clinical research worldwide right now is focused on clinical applications. So taking people with a diagnosed illness and treating it because those people are the most in need. Um, uh, historically, the uh, drugs and the treatments that have perceived, been perceived as most risky, our society has been most willing to give to the people who are most at risk. Uh, so people who are dying, people who have severe PTSD, um, these are very sympathetic groups of people um, that, that, that uh, we've therefore gotten permission to administer these these drugs too there seems to be an interesting amount of religious organizations that were able to challenge uh their their respective legislation on 
the legality of these substances and are able to use substances like ayahuasca to to perform their their religious ceremonies have what is your what is your opinion about those groups <clears throat> yeah um it's uh not the first time the um u.s government has allowed the uh religious use of a psychedelic. The um, Native American church also has legal permission to use peyote, uh, the active component um, of which is mescaline, in their own religious ceremonies. So religious use is another area that's expanding. Um, again, not just therapeutic use, uh, but, but also creative use and also this religious use. Um, all of these are areas that we want to see opening up uh, and hopefully this clinical research will shift the public conversation enough so that we can do research into those areas as well. Have, have you, I know that you guys are focusing mainly on MDMA right now. So what, what are some of the, the negative effects that you've seen in your clinical trials? Uh, so this would basically be the list of uh, potential negative side effects that we're going to see on the prescription bottle when it's finally approved. Um, so there have been over 800 people, subjects already treated in our clinical trials using MDMA. Uh, and in all of those, um, all of those applications, all those administrations of MDMA, we've only had one serious adverse event. Um, a serious adverse event is a sort of clinical trial speak for the worst case scenario, um, the worst case um, thing that we would expect to see happen, um, given how uh, much MDMA people are receiving um, and the fact that they've been pre-screened and so forth. And the worst case scenario, the single serious adverse event that we had was a middle-aged man who had an elevated heart rate during the session uh, so high that the uh, medical monitor there on staff was uh, not sure that um, he was safe. And so he was taken to the emergency room and evaluated and then released later that same day. Um, so that's the worst we've had as a case of a, of a dangerously elevated heartbeat. So in those trials... Uh, something that's important to remember is all of those subjects have been pre-screened. So anybody receiving MDMA in those clinical trials has already been evaluated for a family history of serious heart problems or serious neurological problems um, and things like that. So for different people, the risks vary. But for MDMA, the most common side effects are, as I said, an elevated heart rate, elevated blood pressure, um, and um, possibly an anxiety reaction. People can feel very anxious. Uh, all of that is only during the effects of MDMA. Um, there's also uh, some report of a decrease in uh, uh, certain kinds of um, uh, brain activity, serotonin in particular, uh, just a few days after the use of MDMA. But that's all restored to normal in two to four weeks right. after treatment. So that's the worst um, we tend to expect from MDMA. Uh, the risks change very much when it's used in large quantities uh, or used in recreational settings or when not enough water is being consumed or when too much water is being consumed or when people otherwise just aren't regulating their, 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 their temperature and fluid uh, intake. Um, so again, that difference between the controlled setting with screen subjects um, and the recreational setting um, is, is very great. How does a person become a licensed therapist with with maps 
Well, in our clinical trials, we uh, just find therapists and we train them uh, and um, we en enroll them as, as investigators in our studies. We only have uh, a few studies going on right now, uh, five or six uh, total, if, if, if you include our therapist training study where we administer MDMA to healthy volunteers as part of their training. Um, but all of these people are, um, they're, they're, they're hand selected um, to be therapists in our studies uh, based on their training and experience. Um, so MDMA-assisted psychotherapy isn't just, just, just any old psychotherapy and then give them MDMA and we talk for a while. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's what's called a non-directive form of psychotherapy. Um, we've developed a, a training manual, an actual manual for people to administer this form of psychotherapy. It's available on our website. Uh, at maps.org. Um, anybody can download our treatment manual uh, and see how this therapy is being administered. Um, and a non-directive therapy is just this kind of therapy where it's, it's open-ended. The therapist isn't telling the subject to go a certain way. Uh, the psychotherapist isn't, isn't interpreting the patient's experience in any way. Um, they're just um, uh, being reflecting boards for the subjects as they work through their trauma. Um, yeah, so all of that's available online. Um, it's, um, uh, it's, um, you know, a different process now during the clinical trials than it will be once MDMA is approved. Once MDMA is approved as a prescription drug, then any physician will be able to prescribe it. Um, and then anybody with a therapeutic license under the supervision of somebody with a medical degree um, a prescribing license will be able to actually sit with the subject, or in that case, the patient, and administer the therapy. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a really positive thing for humanity as a whole. Uh, I hope so. There is a lot of people, not just in this country, but um, but uh, you know, in other countries where PTSD is also an epidemic, um, where where it could be really um, where it could be really valuable. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, man. Uh, we're we're approaching the end here. Um, what do you have anything else that you want to want to add? I know this is this is more of an an awareness kind of thing where we're we're discussing what Maps is doing and putting it on the map. Pun, pun intended. Yeah, yeah, just that you know, um, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, how they can help and how they can get involved and um, you know what they can do at this stage. Um, you know, one is definitely, uh, you know, like Francis Crick did, like Steve Jobs did, um, you know, like a lot of people are doing is um, it's important to talk about your experience openly, uh, you know, and not and really not be afraid. Um, you know, if you if, if, if you have the privilege to live in a culture, to live in a place where you can talk openly about your experience, then do. Um, of course, a lot of people don't, and a lot of people are still under threat of law, and they can't talk about their beneficial experiences um, because of their ethnicity or because of their... Uh, economic location or because of where they live in the world. Um, so, so for them, then talking openly about it isn't quite um, an option yet. But what they can do is educate themselves. Um, check out maps.org. Um, we've got a, a newsletter that I send out every month with all of the latest research, uh, multimedia news articles. Um, uh, so the email newsletter definitely has a great way to um, you know, stay up to date. We have a lot of stuff. Um, we have LSD studies and MDMA studies, ayahuasca studies, ibogaine studies. Um, 
We have a marijuana study. Uh, we're right now um, waiting right now for a final decision from the state of Colorado on whether MAPS is going to get our first ever government grant for $2 million for wow. our uh, medical marijuana research for PTSD. Um, that's something we haven't really discussed much um, because MDMA is so exciting. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, marijuana uh, as a treatment for PTSD is very much not like MDMA psychotherapy for PTSD in the sense that we're not trying to, um, you know, completely eliminate PTSD symptoms, but rather just help people deal with the symptoms to cope with the symptoms, you know, on an everyday basis. So we're waiting on that grant decision. Um, if we get that funding, we'll have all the funding we need for that study. Um, although we'll still need to find a way to actually get the marijuana from the federal government. So, um, that's a really fascinating story and people should, um, check out the email newsletter and follow along as we try to start the very first clinical research to make marijuana a prescription drug. Yeah, man, it's, it's really exciting. I, I know there's, there's a very broad scope of, of things here and, and there, there are a lot of, a lot of drugs that I guess that can be classified as helpful to, to repairing and, and treating PTSD. I know you guys are working with MDMA, I, I find ayahuasca is really interesting. Do you think there's, yeah. is, there, is there a large difference in your mind between synthetic, synthetic drugs that treat PTSD and the, nat the natural drugs that treat PTSD? I think the distinction isn't between synthetic and natural. Um, I think that's a too easy distinction um, because synthetic drugs can be beneficial for some things and other natural substances can be useful for other things. The difference really is that with synthetic drugs, you're just getting single isolated chemicals, which can themselves have beneficial effects as we're seeing with the MDMA research. And as we see with LSD research, LSD is also a synthetic chemical, although it's derived from a natural compound, just like MDMA. So first of all, there's a synthesis process that makes it hard to distinguish natural from synthetic. Um, you can get synthetic molecules derived from organic sources, um, for example. Um, the other thing is that with natural compounds, you tend to have much more than a single molecule uh, involved. With ayahuasca, it's a complex mixture of mm. different chemicals, um, largely DMT, um, but, which can be synthesized, but also, but also occurs endogenously in, in mammals, mm -hmm. including humans. Um, so that's a complex mixture of things. Ibogaine, um, some treatments use the um, uh, isolated or synthetic Ibogaine hydrochloride. Others use the more complex plant mixture. Um, so you get different effects in different combinations depending on natural and synthetic. Natural and synthetic. But I think there's no way to just say natural is good and synthetic is bad. I think that's really just as harmful and just as misinformed as saying psychedelics are good and opiates are bad or vice versa. Right. Um, you know, it's just what are we using it for? How carefully are we using it? Um, and what are we intending? Thanks, Brad. I do appreciate your time and. Sometimes these conversations can be a little bit difficult to have because of the legal gray area that they exist in. 